Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to the Masters of Modern. I am your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's up, everybody? Uh, today we have the wonderful Patrick Chapin on the phone. Hello. <laughs> How you doing? We're doing great, man. This is such an honor. I mean, this is a huge honor for us. Like, you've got multiple magic books published. You're a you're a legend. You're a Hall of Famer. You're on the phone with the Masters of Modern podcast. It's amazing. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is this has been a, a little little ways coming. I, you know, we've talked to you at, at events past about this, and now we're finally in a posi- position where a couple people are listening to us. So you actually agreed to the show. Uh, this is exciting. dude. I'm pumped. <laughs> Grix, this is such a good time. I mean. There are a lot of times in modern's history in which Grixis has not been one of the defining decks of the format. You know, so I'm, I'm super excited that Grixis is, you know, this is a good day and age for Grixis, even without <laughs> Ultimatum. Yeah, you're like a mad scientist that's been like touting your crazy theories for years, and then all of a sudden it's finally caught on, and like now you're like riding the wave, right? I, I think it's more like I just keep saying it's two o'clock. <laughs> and then like eventually it's like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Grixis deck is super sweet. Like, there's been a bunch of articles recently about just how Grixis in, in its various forms and like Delver, various control or twin is the best thing to be playing in modern. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely advantageous to be talking to the Grixis expert himself. It's not so much even that, that it's anything up, you know, it's not that Grixis is inherently like, oh, this color combination is, is just, you know, fundamentally, you know, it, it's just the fact that. Blue has the cantrips that make delve cards super good. Black has the delve cards that reward you. Uh, and then red has the card lightning bolt. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, modern's, modern's yeah. so sweet like that. So so this will be just like a quick jump in just because it's, it's the thought that I had in the last podcast we did. And it specifically relates to, relates to Grixis. And we will get into sort of just your, your history as a magic player. But when delve was refreshed and you realized that delve cards were going to be back, like the first time you looked at Angler – did you just think like Thoughtscour is so unfairly powerful? Like you just like immediately think that. Well, I mean, Tassiger had a little bit more of my attention at first. Right. But uh, I ended up loving Tassiger as much as I thought I would. And he was so good that I was like, man, we should just play with more. And I just remember joking with Tom Ross one day where it's like, dude, I'm not even, I even said, I was like, dude, I'm not even sure I'm joking, man. Like, why don't we just play Gurmag Angler? Like, we just <laughs> want more Tassigers. And then playing it, it was like very quickly it became clear, you know, Gurmig Angler is actually uh, really, really good. It's got a lot of advantages over Tassiger in certain areas. Well, like one yeah. blue, add three mana to cast a creature and draw a card is like pretty solid, I'd say. Well, I mean, I mean like the this... old cantrip dark ritual. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it, is, it came out right after all of the extremely broken blue delve cards kind of got banned out of the format. It was like, if this was so strong as what it ended up being, let's look at the rest of the Delve cards and then almost every single one of them that like has legitimate 
constructed playability has like been very legitimate in its constructed playability. Even from like pump six to five fives to four fives that draw you cards. Right. So like they all see play. And it's, what comes down to is cost reduction is such a dangerous mechanic. And almost every single time Wizards messes with it, they create <laughs> overpowered cards. Yeah, let me ask, Patrick, let me ask you. So like a couple examples of things I can think of where they were trying to think outside the box in their design, whether it's cost reduction or free spells, three that come to mind would be like Delve, we'll say Miracles, and we'll say Phyrexian Mana. When you look at things like that that can be extremely broken, and, and all of those have been, I'd say, somewhat broken in their respective formats, do you get excited as somebody who, who likes to play powerful cards? Or as like a game designer and innovator, do you think to yourself, well, this is really powerful and awesome that you know I can draw three for one with Treasure Cruise, but it's totally unfair and I wish they hadn't been printed? Uh, I guess uh, my technically correct answer would be that that is a false dichotomy. Okay. Uh, so maybe my answer would be no. Uh, but I, let's see, I, I like formats that are exploitable more as a competitor in a short run. Sure. And I like formats that are dynamic but more balanced as a uh, as a baseline for what is normally going on in Magic as a magic player. Sure. And so I, I like the hunt to try to break things. And I like if it usually doesn't work out because it's healthier for the game. If it usually doesn't work out to break things. Right. However, it's much, much more exciting when things can break sometimes. And I think that, uh, I think there's a big difference between delve cards uh, miracles and Frexia Mana. Sure, sure. There's just examples. I think that uh, miracles is totally fine. They're very, very dynamic, and people have this. Uh, th there is an irrational emotional response out of people because of how swingy they could be at times when they weren't even taking into consideration. You know, like the card Fireball is swingy. Sure. You know, if you draw an X spell later in the game, it's going to seem amazing. Bonfire is not unique in that regard. Um, Frexian Man, on the other hand, I think was just an abomination, but not because of power level issues so much as how much it was just savagely color bleeding and uh, paying life to color bleed everything is not a great mechanic for the health of magic. And uh, as far as Delve cards go, I think Delve is a great mechanic. I think Delve is one of the best designed um, uh, cost reduction mechanics, which is a somewhat uh dubious distinction <laughs> given how you know how un ungood that uh, general class of cards is for the game of magic i think delve is awesome because in general delve cards are not free they have a cost and that cost is highly variable and you can build around them or you can play them fair straight up i think that uh dig through time and treasure crew i think that some of the delve cards are more powerful than i would have liked to see but uh I, I don't think that that's an indictment of the mechanic itself. You know, very clearly it is possible to make lots of Delve cards that are totally fine. You know, like four blue, blue, Will, like Will of the Naga. I, I think that Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise actually would have been totally fine. Um, I mean, they're fine now. You know, they're just banned in formats where they're not fine. <laughs> but uh, I think that, that, uh, that they probably should have been a little less powerful.
Sure. Um, and as we saw with, but the- I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just okay. Maybe, you know, you want to shake up the format some. And I actually think that as long as you just balance the cards for standard, who cares that modern's great in that it, it keeps adapting and evolving and you make amazing new cards. It's much better to make an amazing new card that changes the format for a little while, even if you have to ban that card sometimes than it is for the format to be stale and, and never evolving and changing. So I actually love the effect that Delve has had on, on modern in general. Yeah, I, I definitely think. Uh, well, okay. Did you play just quick, quick aside? Did you play Logic Knot when it was in Standard, or did you not? Yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I actually played Logic Knot in Modern. That's awesome. Or in Standard, and not Modern, uh, in Old Extended. Okay. So you mentioned you like breaking formats, and you you enjoy that. So let's jump a little bit into your kind of history as a Magic player, and and where that starts, because I know you're famous for a lot of different things. Obviously, where do you think was your greatest triumph as a format breaker? Would you say Oh seven Dragonstorm, or do you something else? No, definitely last year at uh, in Atlanta, the uh, the Obzon deck before Obzon was Obzon. You okay. know, playing the uh, I guess it's the last of the junk decks, but uh, playing in 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 block in Theros block constructed uh, a black green white mid range sort of deck that that uh that was unlike what most people were doing and uh using fleece like identifying that fleece main lion was actually the best two cost removal spell in the format it was the the biggest technological edge i've ever felt like i had at a pro tour and i ran significantly above expectation to to actually win the event however I think that it is the, out of every Pro Tour I've ever played in, it is the Pro Tour that if you were to do it over and over again and just keep running it, that I would win the most times. Like, I, I think I, I mean, it's hard to, to gauge such things, but if, ever, if, we kept, if you kept wiping people's memories clean and just running it back with just different random number generators for the, uh, you know, the positioning of where the cards were, I, I, I could imagine actually winning that Pro Tour 5% of the time, which is an ungodly high amount comparatively you know, and uh, that's the time where I felt like I had the biggest edge. Yeah, winning the Pro Tour 5% of the time. Among Pro Tours. Decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Among, uh, among Pro Tours. I mean, the biggest edge I ever had was probably when uh, I was on a team uh, and I won an Origins team challenge back in, uh, I think it was like 99. But uh, the, each person on the team had to play a different format. And I was the type one player, which is the precursor to vintage, of course. And at the time... Uh, there was a, there had been a ruling that the way Lion's Eye Diamond worked is you could just announce a spell and then say you were going to pay for it with your Lion's Eye Diamond. So you could be like, I'm going to cast Time Twister. I'm going to pay for it with Lion's Eye Diamond. <laughs> and so functionally, Lion's Eye Diamond was, was very close to a Black Lotus, and, and it wasn't restricted at that point. So you could play four Lion's Eye Diamonds in addition to your Black Lotus, and you could also play four Mana Crypts, and you could play four Lotus Petals, and you could play four Mana Vaults. In fact, there were very, very many cards that almost every card in my deck that I played multiple copies of is now restricted. You can play multiple Yawgmoth's wills. You can play multiple tinkers. <laughs> it, I mean, my, so, so throughout the tournament, uh, so our team won and I won every game I played and I actually only had two games in the entire tournament that lasted more than one turn. Jeez. And, uh, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, that is the best deck, the most, that is the, the best at winning deck that anybody has ever played in a tournament since the advent of the four of rule. Um, but uh, I, I, that was probably the time at which I felt like I had the most edge on deck in any tournament at all. 
but it was type one. So it's like, whatever. I mean, they've banned 15, they've restricted 15 cards that I played with, but the, uh, the type one, I don't even think is necessarily canon. I mean that also they emergency errated the, you know, they changed all the rules like two weeks later because obviously it just wasn't functionally magic <laughs> as you're playing like wizards like uh actually we're just gonna change how this whole thing works and right like... they did that before man i right. still remember there was a there was a national championships or something where it was either pro tour or national championship where everybody play tested because abeyance was a certain way they had ruled that abeyance worked a certain way so everybody tested for the tournament going up to the tournament with abeyance functionally 85 percent of a time walk 90 percent of a time walk and then they just changed the rules just before the tournament. And it was like, uh, what? Well, Bans, that's back in Weatherlight, correct? Yeah, yeah. This is back in the mid-90s, which, I mean, who knows? You know, whatever happened in the mid-90s stays in the mid-90s <laughs> as far as magic history goes. So you're, you're, uh, in your first book, you tell a story about justifying the power of force of will. That's like one of the earliest parts of the book. And you're in, I think it's in the first chapter or second chapter. I can't quite remember. But you're trying to argue with someone, somebody other, so another famous player, right? Brian Weissman. Brian Weissman. One of, the, uh, one of the architects of all magic theory, inventor of card advantage. And so as, so as it turns out, you are one of the inventors of the same thing. I mean, as, as you tell the story, you're explaining to one of the architects the power of one of the most powerful blue spells ever printed. What are some of your memories before that? Like, Force of Will is one of the most played cards ever in magic. Obviously, in Legacy, it gets played a, a ton now. Uh, magic before that was like you were playing competitive magic before that, right? Or is that the, that's yeah, no, 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 no. I was playing magic competitive. Like, I, I won my first Lotus in uh, <laughs> before Ice Age. I won my first Lotus. Um, yeah. so, so you won your first Lotus in Ice Age. Do you, do you have any, any decks from those early, early days way back when that, that pop out in your mind that you designed that you're still proud of? Uh, well, I guess where you draw the line I'm proud of is, is, is perhaps. A, a point, but uh, some of my earliest decks, I mean, I remember my, my earliest competitive deck, I was trying to talk people into playing uh, tournament rules, like tournament legal. Like a lot of people just wanted to play um, people, you know, they, they didn't want to adhere to the four of rule or restricted cards or 60 card decks or whatever. And so I was trying to convince them that, that they should. And, um, and the way I ended up being able to convince them is that I built a 40-card deck that contained eight, seven or eight copies of Channel. And I just, <laughs> and I just, you know, keep my, I'm just like 14 or whatever. But we're just, people are just playing for Annie. And you're just, I'm just like Channel Fireballing people with my 40-card, seven or eight Channel deck. And, you know, just got some Birds of Paradise and some, some Elves and some, just basically a little bit of acceleration, but mostly just try to channel fireball people out until they agree to play with tournament legal rules. So I, I figured out pretty quickly. I mean, my my first deck, I definitely my first deck of cards that I owned, I was like, oh, I opened up. You know, I I I I know that you're supposed to play with less cards because you draw your good cards more often, but most people just don't have as many good cards as me. I opened 18 packs. Sure. Ah, you know, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, Relatively early on, I switched into uh, just playing channels and fireballs. Well, that's a and, solid strategy. <laughs> yeah, I remember one deck in particular. I was I was uh, super proud of that. Um, I found sketched in my notebooks. Like I found an old notebook from from school where I opened the front page in the notebook. It's like course outline, blah blah blah, and then every page in the rest of it is all deck lists. <laughs> but uh, one of the deck lists from there is like 
you know, four lightning bolts, four control magics, four counter spells, uh, four uh, mind twists, four dark rituals, four hypnotic specters, uh, four fireballs, and then like two Shivan dragons, two Mahamodi jinns, four volcanic island, four badlands, four underground sea, and then like 12 more lands, including like four strip mines. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it was a good time. And then, um, because that was back before I even, you know, had uh, as much tournament experience. But that was one of my first ones where it was just like, man, these are just some sweet cards. This yeah. is, I'm just going to, but the, I, I remember playing against my brother who, uh, and this is right, this is like literally the weekend Ice Age came out. Uh, he goes, you know, in, in our first game, he, he dark rituals out a mind stab throw. And it's like, wow, this is, this is going to be a big deal. And then I just lightning bolt it and crush <laughs> it. And my my keep in mind my brother's like at this at this point my brother's like nine or ten, but uh, the next game he he goes dark ritual necropotence on turn <laughs> one, and he just draws a whole bunch of cards. And you got to remember at this point everybody thinks necropotence is just awful. Mm. How could but you my, look at that card and think it's awful? I don't understand. That makes almost no sense everybody to me. did because everybody the, like I remember what Inquest said. I think they said something to the effect of, uh, "I you already get to draw cards for free." Why would you want to have to pay life? <laughs> and I think that it, you know, it was very easy to forget back then. It's very easy to forget how strong cards are not always intuitive. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to just be like, oh, everybody knows Brainstorm is amazing. you got to remember Brainstorm was out for like years before almost anybody played with it. What was it before Fetches, right? Fetch has really changed the game of Brainstorm. No, th the Thawing Glacier was legal. It was in the same block. There were only like 25 people in the world that were playing Thawing Glacier with Brainstorm because most people just did not understand. And then the, the very next set, Mirage Fetchlands came out, but people just didn't understand for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, that's kind of just the classic story. When you take these cards, like, even, like, if you go close, like, Stoneforge Mystic took an entire year before people started realizing, oh, this is just bonkers. And part of that had to do with the different equipment printed along with her. But some of that was like, I remember just there were decks that were winning purely off of the back of just this card existing and it being able to like search it and put it in our Argentum armor or some other stupid yeah. large basic equipment. And like, that was just like based off of that one card that people thought like, Oh, this is like a cute casual thing, but no one's really going to play it. Yeah. They were also searching up the, uh, what's the, what's the plus one plus so gain three life when the creature dies equipment. What was that card called? The Silvok Lifestaff. Yeah, Lifestaff. Lifestaff. That got played with, with well, Stoneforge. So, so, so Stoneforge Mystic. Actually, Stoneforge Mystic, the, uh, the, the first pro tour where it was even legal. Yeah. It actually did quite well and put multiple people into the top eight, in multiple different types of decks. You know, Craig Wesco lost in the finals with a mono white deck that, that heavily relied on four Stoneforge Mystics to get stuff like Trusty Machete. And uh, Luis Scott Vargas played uh i believe he played a naya deck that uh used it only had two stoneforge mystics but it also had two um it had two pieces of equipment a behemoth sledge and uh god i think a basilisk collar that sounds right and uh so the, it, it 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 did change i think as better equipment got printed because the printing of sword of feast and famine was such a revolutionary Change. I mean, Stoneforge Mystic was already quite popular by the time Mirrodin gave us sort of body and mind. 
Right. But Sword of Feast and Famine was just a whole other tier where suddenly this card is just like defining the format. And then the following said, obviously, Batterskull gets printed. <laughs> it's just so silly when you think about that. Like, all just in sequence, like every few months, like you get the swords, and then it's like, yeah, we'll just give you a 4 4 lifelinking creature at instant speed. It's better. <laughs> I mean, like, the story from Wizards' perspective is like they realized around Feast and Fam, like, oh no, Batterskull is coming, and there is nothing we can do at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that was absurd. I remember that. Um, all right, so. That's actually. That's actually uh, that that little series, the Batter Skull mistake, actually played an instrumental role in the creation of the modern format. A lot of people don't realize this, but the very first modern Pro Tour was supposed to be an extended Pro Tour, and the reason they changed it, they actually emergency changed it a month before the Pro Tour, not even a month, less than a month before the Pro Tour, because. Uh, they had already banned Jace the Mining Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic in Standard. And tournament attendance, which had been doing really well for a little while, was taking a hit because people were so sick of Callblade. So right. just Callblade, Callblade, Callblade because of Batter Skull pushing it over the top to the spot where it's just not even beatable anymore. And, uh, and so they go to all this trouble. They bite the bullet. They ban cards in Standard for the first time in seven years or whatever. And... Uh, and lo and behold, the very next Pro Tour is supposed to be extended. And it's supposed to be extended with four Stoneforge Mystic, four Jace the Mind Sculptor, four Preordain, four Mental Misstep. It's just not going to be a realistic Pro Tour. Cobblade was so unbelievable. And that was extended with only four sets. And so uh, they actually decided that that would be a good opportunity to pull the trigger and introduce Modern at the Pro level. The only modern event that had taken place before that was an exhibition in right? the Community Cup, right? And the Community Cup modern wasn't even the modern modern. I mean, they had a complete. It just it was missing the modern ban list. There was, was, I think ten cards that were banned. I mean, it's around ten cards between that. Right. And whereas that. now there's like thirty something extra. Right. And so the the fact that Batter Skull had been printed actually sped up the release of modern into the wild by at least a year or two what was your initial reaction when that happened when the modern announcement came about that they were replacing the pro tour with it yeah just that extended was dead and modern was happening uh i guess i mean it was my idea it was your idea so, i don't know i i had suggested it because uh that was uh we had already played enough of the extended format to know that the Cobblade deck was broken and just showed it to them. They played some and they saw that nothing was even close to competing with it. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people had similar ideas, but that's my, I, I don't know. My, I killed my win percentage. I mean, sure. I would have been so much better off just playing Cobblade, but, but uh, I, I prefer what is better for the game, and it was pretty obvious that Modern was going to be a really, really good thing for Magic. Shots fired. Patrick Chapin, father of the Modern format. <laughs> not at all. No, no, no. That's not the Modern format. No, 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 no. The, Aaron Forsyth and Eric Lauer invented the Modern force, uh, format for the purposes of eventually replacing Extended, which wasn't accomplishing their goals. Right. I think, I think Patrick was saying that he was the person to recommend the switch for that pro the tour. emergency not, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, not yeah it was more it's more kidding around um so <laughs> I, I just disagree with the idea of shots fired. <laughs> so i saw so if I anything ask... the shots were fired into my foot <laughs> <laughs> play Callblade 
got the check and rolled out. Dude, but, I'll tell you, back in that standard, for... I was playing a, a Grand Architect deck with, with with Treasure Mages and Worm Coil Engines and all kinds of sweet stuff in, in, against Cobblade. And I'll tell you, it was it was winning a fair amount of the time. Tumble Magnet yeah, was, was very so, good. That's, uh, I, dude, I know. I played uh, my I played Grixis Tezzeret and top eight at the Pro Tour that Callblade was unveiled. That card, yeah. I mean, and I you... used Treasure Mage to go get Worm Coil Engine. Did that was put... the exact. Yeah, that was that was literally that was that that's the deck I top eighted uh, Pro Tour Paris with in uh, two thousand. What was it? Two thousand ten. Something like that. You did you play four Grand Architect? Tell me you did. No, 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 no Grand Architect. <laughs> Son of a gun. It's like my favorite uh, card instead ever. I use, yeah, I use like Mox Opal and uh, and Sphere of whatever it is that makes me call it. Sphere of Suns, yeah. Well, I mean, like yeah. when, when Tezzeret first came out, it was heralded as this the answer to Jace because of how much able it was. Like the 5-5 five, five hasty artifact creatures it would make made it so the Jace's bounce move wasn't as protective, and so it was definitely a good answer for that first Pro Tour. Both kind of were around. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I beat up on Jace. I can't tell you how many times people go, Jace, look at your top card. And then I would go, Tezzeret, attack Jace with my Mox Opal or whatever. Yeah, I like, I like Tezzeret a lot. I think the card's kind of underused. But So I, I want to talk a little bit before we get into – we have some questions about drawing cards and whatnot. Um, but I want to get into just a little bit the, the period of time. So you were talking about Abeyance, and, and we talked about Force of Will a little bit. Those are the early days of Magic. And we'll sort of – the second phase of it I like to think of is – essentially like when they changed the rarity symbol to being colored. So around the time that, you know, Mercadian masks and, and, and Urza's block came out uh, through maybe, I don't know, I guess probably the modern format. So that middle period there, what's like, what was your, what was your pro experience like during that time? We'll say, I guess Urza's block through onslaught block. Uh, I wasn't super focused on, uh, Urza Block was like the last one that I was really focused heavy on magic a little bit. During uh, Mercadian Mask Block, I was kind of just, but I wasn't, a, that, that's during a, a period of time where I wasn't as, uh, I wasn't as focused on, uh, on magic. I wasn't playing as often. I, I started playing magic a bunch when I got out of prison. So they didn't have magic cards in prison. And then when I actually had magic cards that I could touch, I touched them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that I, I've always loved magic, you know, and uh, getting to actually play, like physically being able to play was to me the bottleneck. For years when I was gone, designed magic cards and made decks. And, you know, like I, I chatted a lot with Mark Herberholz about his uh, his Kamigawa block deck that he ended up top eighting with with gifts and and uh, did uh, a fair bit of design for for some of the sets like um you know from from that time period but i i never actually really got to play with with cards myself for a long time i would play actually i would i would play decks of playing cards and just pretend that they were magic cards and just memorize what all the different cards represented you know just take four extra jokers and four extra kings put them in a deck so i have 60 cards and <laughs> yeah and just play against myself sometimes but you you talk about it a little bit in your book, I think, right? Was it Flores that would relay your articles? Is that something that I remember reading? Uh, yeah, I I for a while start, like I started writing articles, and I would actually just uh, mail like I'd write them out on paper and mail the the uh, the article to Flores, and then he would type it up and submit it for me. Yeah, that's and, yeah, yeah. That's my first year of articles was that way. 
So that's a pretty that's a pretty unique pit, bit of magic history. Yeah, see, I mean, I think I think like nowadays, like, I think that's like a pretty interesting part of the story. So, um, but jumping from that into we'll say since the modern, modern era, yeah, oh yeah, three forward. I mean, nowadays you're, the, the, you know, one of one of the premier faces of the game, and I mean, you're expected at a pro tour often to be one of the people that's going to unveil a winning deck list and you know or finish a unique highly. one at least. Yeah, I mean, you're obviously somebody who's looked to and and has a lot of respect. So. When that sort of part of your career started, I mean, when do, you, when do you think you started to really identify yourself that way as, like, somebody, one of the top 10 or 20 sort of minds in the game? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's – I guess I don't really think of myself that way, but I – Modest? <laughs> well, no, I, I don't know what utility there is in such framing. Sure. I know that um, I was – like my skill set has evolved a little bit. Like I, I, I'm old and busted and not as sharp as I was when I was a kid, but I know more stuff and I've got more experience. Um, so like my skill set has evolved a little bit. Uh, I mean, my first PTQ I ever played in in '96, uh, the first year of the Pro Tour, I won without losing any matches. And then my first Pro Tour there, when I went on to it to Dallas, I didn't lose any matches in Swiss either. And I quickly switched to the adult division and started top eighting pro tours immediately. And so I didn't really ever have the experience of not winning a bunch at magic. I mean, <laughs> so I, 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 I don't know. I never really thought about it that way. I know that when I got back, um, the, my first individual pro tour that I could actually attend, I ended up coming in second at, and at the uh, the World Championships in 2007 with uh, Mono Red Dragonstorm. Right. You know, alongside Nassif and Herber Halls. But that was very much largely benefited by the fact that Herber Halls and Nassif were two of the absolute best players in the world. And getting a chance to collaborate with them and to learn more from them was uh, a huge boon and a huge asset, you know? Yeah. I mean, that deck, too, you talk about it, I think, in your book, definitely. You, you reference that. and. Uh, that's that was such an exciting story. The way that it sort of was like such a surprise, right? You were like, we've broken the format, and you you got second at the World Championships with it. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a really 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 truly great deck, and uh, it was a great deck for one weekend. But uh, <laughs> as is often the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the black white deck that that Paul Rietzel top aided with in uh, Dublin, and I finished ninth with. That deck was amazing. For that weekend, and then it just completely fell apart the following week. There's just no, it was obsoleted immediately. Yeah, well, I mean those those uh, those first weekend formats often, right? They change drastically. So I, I want to get a little bit into uh, some some theory on like two for ones card drawing and whatnot. But before we do, really quickly, I do want to remember to to mention that you guys can tweet at us on Twitter. You should find us if you're listening to this on Twitter. We're at the MM Cast. Uh, also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Command Zone, with uh, Jimmy Wong and Josh Lee Kwai. Excellent Commander content. They do a great job. Um, if you like Commander or if you want to get into Commander, it's a great place to go. Uh, it's The Command Zone, but at The Command Cast, right? At The Command Cast on Twitter and their Command Zone on rocketjump.com. Yeah, rocketjump.com, just like us. So uh, let's get into phase two. Um, all right, let's get, into, let's get into card drawing. So... Uh, so I think hard, hard drawing is good. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we have all sorts of little like subcategories here um, that are about them. So the first question I have is, you know, on a basic level, why is drawing cards one of the most powerful things to be doing in Magic? 
Magic is about having options and denying your opponent options. You win the game when your opponent no longer has the option to keep playing. And uh, at the beginning of the game, you have all the options that are in your opening hand. Each turn, you get another option. And all your cards in play give you options. Um, when you draw an extra card, it gives you more options and more opportunity to have better options. And that's what magic is about. What is the difference between card velocity and how is it different from card advantage? Velocity is just, it's how quickly you look through your deck rather than the total number of cards you have. There's different types of options. Velocity is more about having uh, a better selection of options, but only being able to exercise so many of them at once. Sure. Whereas card advantage allows you to have more total options at all points. So like looting, like when you draw a card and discard a card, you are getting selection, but you're not actually getting card advantage per se. Uh, when you, when you, use a card that draws one card, you're going deeper into your deck, but you're not actually necessarily getting card advantage. But the cumulative effect of all of the different cards in your deck that let you look at more cards, that is a measure of how much velocity you have. So actually, like, Corsair of Crufix provides card advantage because of the extra cards you play off the top of your deck that you would have drawn next turn if, if the Corsair wasn't there. But it also gives you even more velocity because of things like fetch lands or anything else that lets you reset the top of your deck. Because when you are able to shuffle your deck, you get more looks for more actual card advantage, but you also get more looks at, at what you're going to draw next turn. And if you don't like what you're going to draw, you might shuffle it and look at something else. And then it's like you looted or scryed. Um, would you say that maybe Treasure Cruise versus Dig Through Time and the different inherent power levels between the two is kind of a good example of velocity versus pure card advantage, where one lets you kind of dig deeper but only get two options while the other one gets more actual cards but not as well selected uh i mean that's not really what velocity is about velocity they're both those are both card advantage um and obviously dig through time has more selection but velocity isn't about the selection per se it's not the same as uh like there is a lot of velocity in that dig through time lets you look at seven things instead of just three like treasure cruise so it is, strictly speaking, more velocity. However, it is uh, also card advantage because you draw two cards. Um, the, uh, a, a good example, I think, of the difference between velocity and card advantage would be uh, anticipate versus divination. Anticipate and divination are both cards that somebody might use to help set up their, their deck early on in, in, in a, a format as weak as like standard, for instance, compared to modern. But anticipate lets you look at three for only two mana, what, plus have added options, you know, like being able to do it on your opponent's end step. Whereas divination only lets you look at two and it costs three mana. So it actually costs more and gives you less. The difference, of course, is the divination gives you two cards total, whereas anticipate only gives you one. So that's just uh, literally how efficiently can you look at more cards is is very much velocity. And yes, dig through time does that more than twice as efficiently as treasure cruise in most cases. So I want to jump on that for a second. The notion there, because 
we've all had the thing happen to us where somebody says, uh, oh, this game you play magic. So it's like Dungeons and Dragons, right? And you have to try to explain them what it is. And often I've bored people with the explanation. So I usually like to say it's some combination of poker meets chess. And then thematically, there's some sort of fantasy element. I don't even bring up the thematic fantasy element. Okay, yes. So poker meets chess, and that's pretty common. I'm not sure if you've used that one before, but I think... All the time. Yeah, so when you try to explain... So they say, that sounds interesting, go further. And then you have to start to try to explain to them that if you were somehow able to manipulate the number of cards you were drawing, but the variables involved with the cards and the ability to navigate or manipulate the perfect information that chess represents is what makes magic so interesting. But there's so much more value in the cards themselves and the options that you're talking about uh, wh- like when you have to explain magic to someone and, and you begin to tr- sort of broach the subject of drawing cards and card selection and how important that is, how do you do that? How, how, what's your well, explanation? Well, to begin with, I usually, like, muggles don't need to know how important card advantage is. Sure. Th- that's, that's, that's like, like a wizard might care about what happens if you mix Hogwart with Eye of Newt, but a, uh, you know, a, a muggle that's not exposed to that world, they don't need to know how you're, you're going to make an invisibility cloak. I mean, they're excited about the invisibility cloak. That said, the way that I, that that I would describe magic is generally, it's kind of a combination of poker and chess poker in that you play with the cards you draw, but chess and each card is like a different piece. There you go. It sounds like you've done this before. (laughs) Because once somebody realizes that cards are like pieces in chess, right? That's that's it because there's like a very intuitive grasp that in chess you want to have pieces. The pieces are good in chess because each piece does something. It's just like when you're playing toy soldiers and each toy soldier does something. You know. I mean, like inherently, chess is about trying to keep more pieces than your opponent at all times, and that is in many ways what card advantage is. It's just there's no additional pieces you get. It's just you're trying to kill as many of your opponent's pieces as possible. Well, I think most people approach chess that way. I, I. um, uh, there's a lot of um, nuances depending on where you're going with chess. And I've played quite a bit of chess myself. The real point is to actually checkmate the king. And that sometimes involves tempo, sometimes pawn positioning and structure. And sometimes that has to do with, uh, you know, strange tactical states that can emerge when pieces are lined up a, a specific way. But uh, in general, it's very intuitive for people to realize that, 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 having pieces is good. And if you don't have pieces, you end up losing. And if you get rid of your opponent's pieces, they won't be able to defend themselves. Sure. Sure. That, I mean, yeah, makes sense. We, 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 have, we now have a chess master on the, on the phone as well. Um, no, I, definitely no chess master, <laughs> but uh, you know, sometimes when you can't play magic, chess is what's going on. Do you, so we all have our favorite cards and I mean, a lot of your history has been, you know, favorite cards have been cards that draw things and give you options. Is your favorite card of all time a cantrip? Do you have a favorite card of all time? Do you consider Jace the Mind Sculptor a cantrip? Uh, yeah, it nets you one card in the brainstorm. So, yeah, I mean, at least one. But, yeah, it definitely get, nets you one card. All right, then, yeah. My favorite card is a cantrip. Hands down, that's <laughs> the favorite. And I guess second place and third place are, too. I mean... What is the second and third? Like, like Cryptic Command. Yeah, you love Cryptic Command. What's your third favorite? Brainstorm. Yeah, there, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Okay, so the answer is yes. Um, can you just quickly say, like... Beyond drawing, what are the different versions of card advantage that come to mind for you? Uh, Of card advantage? Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody always says magic's about card advantage, and we know that one spell that draws me two cards, that's card advantage. But beyond just the simple that, what what else comes to mind for you as the important versions of it in magic? So there's lots of of ways to get 
I guess what is functionally card advantage. Um, if you play a creature, if you play a card that, that, that does something and also does something else, often you can get card advantage. Like for instance, if you play a, if you play a, uh, a creature that when it comes into play kills another creature, well, that's often a source of card advantage because now you have this creature and your opponent doesn't have their creature. So it is like you got a two for one. So Necrotal. Necrotal, absolutely perfect. Snapcaster Mage, you know, it, it's a card, and then it gives you another card functionally. Abbot of Carol Keep. Yeah. Um, but also cards that make multiple cards, you know, like uh, Token Makers could be a form of card advantage. It just really comes down to the utility of the things you're making, you know, because sometimes a 1-1 is just not worth a card at all, often, in fact. Whereas often a 2-1 is sort of the minimum floor of what is worth a card um, where you're like, okay, well, yeah, I, I, this is functionally, I can use this. This is a piece in some way. This is at least as good as a pawn. Um, because in many ways, a card is like a pawn. Right. And uh, uh, let's see. If you, an Elspeth, when it comes into play, the fact that it can either make three tokens and you still have the Elspeth, or when it comes into play, you can kill your opponent's dragon and you still have the elspeth i mean that's that's a form of card advantage but there's also a lot of virtual card advantage like um when you when you have jace vrin prodigy in play there is a virtual card advantage that comes along with it where like your extra land you might not have been able to do anything with and so they were effectively dead but because of jace you're drawing a new card to replace them and so even though you're not strictly ahead on cards the cards that you have that are actually useful is greater. And so you have virtual card advantage. Uh, another way of having virtual card advantage would be if you're playing a creatureless control deck that just wins with planeswalkers and your opponent has some amount of ultimate prices or bio blights, you have this inherent virtual card advantage because every time your opponent draws one of those cards, it's functionally like they are down a card. I, I, I'm a, a brewer, somebody who likes to come up with wacky things, and I, I, you know, I'm definitely the middle category, right? A, a spike, not I'm sorry, not a spike, a Johnny, uh, somebody who really, really wants to do something clever and be rewarded for it. So often you look at things that have been around for a long time, a function like boomeranging your land, for instance, and in theory, it's like I'm trading a card and you're getting a land back in your hand. That's tempo. Could that be equated to something like card advantage, like when you're, or is that clearly tempo? Well, uh, I mean, that is definitely tempo. However, it's a fine line between tempo and card advantage because tempo can turn into virtual card advantage and virtual card advantage can turn into real card advantage because the very nature of what tempo is, is dynamic. It's, uh, like, let me, let me give you an example. There was a deck that top baited a Pro Tour uh, a, almost a decade ago the Owling Mine that was uh -huh. usually either mono blue or mostly blue, which is a light splash of red. Um, and, and there was another deck around the same time, a Magnavore deck that was blue-red that used Stone Rain and, and Bounce Spells. And both decks took advantage of the fact that if, like, if your lane gets bounced on the second turn and you're on the draw, you generally just got sinkholed because in that format most decks didn't play any one drops and so then you would you know you would just have one too many cards in your hand and you just have to discard and so that would be like one to one right right except that also around that time period people really enjoyed playing with cards like is it boiler works 
And so you could actually end up in situations sometimes where somebody would go, uh, you know, on their, on their second turn, they would play an Is It Boilerworks or some other, or an Orzo, uh, an Orzo Basilica. And if it gets bounced, now you're down two cards because you're, you, it's like you got double stone rained. And so now it is a form of card advantage. So it, it can be, but for the most part, it's, it's tempo because you are trading some resource now for this temporary advantage that you hope to leverage into a more permanent advantage. But if nothing changes, the natural flow will be for that advantage to dissipate. You know, like for instance, if you just bounce somebody's land and do nothing else, they will just play it again. And it will be like nothing happened eventually, because eventually there would have been a time in which they would have missed a land drop. And now they catch back up. Let me let me clarify really quickly because I ra- I rambled for a second before I asked you that question and I realized that I to any listener probably didn't make any sense as far as what I was asking. So when I said that about being a creative brewer and something like boomeranging a land, which is a classic thing we've all thought about doing, you look at that and you go, as you said, if you're not doing something else, it's almost card disadvantage because you're losing a card and they're just going to replay the land. Well, you- it is card disadvantage inherently. It, so when you cast boomerang on somebody's land, you had a card in your hand. Now you don't. Right. You're down a card. You have one less option. Now your opponent had a land in play. Now they have a land in their hand. They have the same number of cards total. Now what you've denied them is a land in play and all of the options that go along with it, um, which in the short run means they have less ability to cast spells in some contexts. You know, they're one lower. They have one too many cards in their hand under some situations. But in general, they have uh, they they have the same amount of permanent resources, which is that they had a card. And now they still have a card. So they had the same amount of permanent resources, but temporarily they are behind in mana. They had a certain amount of mana and now they're temporarily behind. Now they catch up the first turn. They would have missed a land drop, but uh, you have given up a permanent resource for a temporary advantage. And that's what the tempo, that's what the word tempo is really standing for is it is a temporary advantage. That's what a tempo advantage is. Gotcha. Okay. I actually didn't know that distinction. So the question that I have essentially to piggyback off the whole tangent is when you're trying to identify clever ideas that are not just tier one strategies already, and you're, you say something to yourself like, well, I shouldn't do that because it's card disadvantage. Where is the tipping point? If you're not generating card advantage by doing something cute or clever, when is it advantageous enough for you? Like, do you identify that when you're trying to evaluate new cards or new deck ideas? Do you say, well, it isn't card advantage, but it's this. So it's worth it. Well, the, so there's a give and a take. There's a, a balance to the different types of ways to gain an advantage in magic. In general, there are three ways to gain an advantage. Card advantage, tempo, and the philosophy of fire. Um, the philosophy of fire, of course, is, is your life total most commonly, but it also is somebody's trying to mill you out, it's how many cards you have in your deck. If somebody is trying to poison you out, it's how many poison counters you can take before you lose. Basically, card advantage is the what you begin the game with uh, and get more of over time. You know, it's the resources that you, that you start with and accumulate more of. Uh, tempo is the resource that you don't start any. You, you start the game with nothing, and you gain it over time. 
such as the you can only play one land a turn. You have no land in play at the beginning of the game, but you can play a land each turn, and then you can untap your cards each turn one time, and you can attack one time. You know, you gain abilities later in the game that you don't start with, and th that is the nature of tempo. And then finally, the philosophy of fire is stuff you start the game with, but you don't get more of naturally. You have to actually work to get any more of, such as you start the game with 20 life, but if you don't do anything, you will not get any more. That's it. You start with however many cards are in your deck at the beginning of the game, but you don't get any more unless you do something. And you start with the ability to take nine poison counters before you die, and that's it. You don't get more unless you do something. So those are the three types of advantages. And uh, uh, the, to balance between them, it's, it's really just a question of the pros and the cons, where you're like, okay, well, this is what it's costing me to do this. You know, you're like, oh, uh, Lava Spike, I am giving up a card and a mana in exchange for three damage to my opponent. And for a lot of decks, they that wouldn't be worth the exchange, but you might have a deck where you're like, my con I actually think it is worth it for this mono red burn deck. And so whenever you're doing anything that is strictly card disadvantage, you have to ask yourself, what is it you're trying to accomplish? What is the, the result? Because if your goal is to win the game, because sometimes people play Magic for different reasons than to just win the game. You know, sometimes they want to show off how creative their angel theme deck is. Sometimes they just want to socialize with their friends and hang out. Sometimes they just want to be clever and do something that nobody's seen before. Sometimes they just want to have big things happen and make it fun. But if your goal is to win, uh, then the question should be, how does this affect my chances of winning the game? And if something is ever a card disadvantage, because first of all, if you ever spend mana, you're already sacrificing some amount of tempo. So already every card that costs any mana at all involves tempo or requires your land drop. That is a cost of tempo. If you have to attack with it, you're, you're losing some amount of tempo there. So if you have to pay a card for it, you're losing some card advantage also. So the, uh, the most common reasons why you would play with a card that is strictly card disadvantage that doesn't have the possibility of, of actually generating card advantage and doesn't produce tempo for you, the reason to do it would be because of its ability to bring you closer to winning the game. Like, for instance, um, if you play with a vampiric tutor, sure, you are down a card and you're down life and you're down mana. You're down all these things. But one of the things it lets you do is Anything find you what you need, <laughs> right? which can be actually much more valuable than any of those other resources because the selection can end up giving you more of something. Like you can sacrifice some amount of everything because one of your options in your deck is so good that you'll make it up in a different area. Or you might put together a combination of cards where if you assemble these two or three cards together, you just win the game outright. And, the, and that actually applies to, like, take a card like, um, take a card like, uh, uh, take a combo piece like Donate. Sure. Donate does nothing for almost any circumstance. 99.999% of the time that you play with, that you could put Donate into a deck, it doesn't do what, anything functionally we're paying for. But it's one half of a combo that nearly wins the game outright and wins the game very, very quickly. And so the, I guess my, the short answer would be if you're, if you're playing with a card that is card disadvantage, 
does it give you tempo? Does it give you a temporary resource? If so, is that worth the cost in mana and the cost in cards and any other cost that goes along with it? And if it doesn't give you tempo, does it bring you closer to winning the game in a direct way, such as you reduce their life total, you mill them out, you assemble a combo that if you assemble all three pieces of the combo, you win the game? Uh, do, do you find, like, does it get a card that if you play this card, your opponent is devastated? Like, for instance, um, if, if you play out this card, it, 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 makes it, so that you're, it, it makes it so that you can then use a different card to make it so that your opponent can never attack you again. Now it's functionally like you've won the game for the most part. So with, that all, with all that in mind, when you're evaluating strategies, and Modern's kind of a tricky format for this because it's eternal, but when you're looking at cards that don't generate card advantage and in the context of, say, a game-winning combo, right? So the, a great example I can use that's very popular now is Amulet of Vigor and Summer Bloom. They were around for a long time. Everybody knew that this was a thing. Two cards that really make the deck run compared to, like, say, Mindcrank and Duskmantle Guildmage or Pilipala and Grand Architect, two-card combos that do a lot but are difficult to protect. How quick are you How quick are you to dismiss an idea when it involves essentially, quote, bad cards, uh, bad on their own? Like, how, how much, how aggressively are you going to test something before saying, Mindcrank's just bad, I'm not playing with Mindcrank in my deck, or Pilipala's useless, I'm not going to build a deck that plays four of those? I have built many Mindcrank decks. I, <laughs> I have built many Pilipala decks. Uh, I build all the bad decks. I... I think that there's just no telling which times the stars are going to align and take some horrible cards and turn them into absolutely amazing format warping cards. Uh, there's certain little clues that can give you some confidence that, you know, uh, like can give you some indication of how much time you should actually invest in exploring these ideas. You know, like for instance, Amulet of Vigor and Summer Bloom effectively have haste. Right. And that's, very, very different from Pillipala and most of the combos that go along with it because most of those combos involve you having a 1-1 artifact <laughs> creature for a turn. And people can interact with stuff like that. And uh, But that said, I still build them and still think about it because sometimes stuff sneaks through that seems like it would be bad. You know, like the Dragonstorm deck is exploitable, but that doesn't mean people were ready for it. It just so happened that the format lined up in a way that that the natural things people were doing were exploitable and people weren't capitalizing on Dragonstorm's weaknesses initially. So I think, I personally, I, I think about all those decks. I build all the bad decks too. I, I've, I love it. I love it so much. Plus it's just like one of the most enjoyable parts of Magic for me. And they're almost always bad. Yeah, absolutely. But, That's absolutely my favorite part of Magic. Not even close. But I gotta tell you, you may ever, if you ever find one that's good, one time, it makes it all worth it. It's literally years. It's all worth it for that one time. It is so truly amazing to be able to be ahead of the curve and to come up with a combo before other people have figured it out and to find some niche way to attack the format that even if it was a combo that existed five years ago but nobody's used lately, to bring it back at just the right time or whatever – that's awesome. And that, that finding one of those gems, one of those diamonds in the rough makes all the hunting for treasure worth it. The whole lifetime. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So on that note, just uh, as a sort of a funny aside, 
what's the closest you've ever gotten to playing one of these horrible decks in a modern event? Is there one that comes to mind that you were you were inches away from sleeving it up and bringing it, but you were like, I can't do it? Dude, I don't think I've ever played in a modern deck without having horrible stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. I mean, I, I think people thought Gurmag Angler was crazy when I first played it. Um, and the, the year before, I played Dredge. I remember that, yep. And uh, Kessler's I mean, favorite deck. There's all sorts of crazy stuff, you know. Like, I, 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 have played the crazy stuff many, many times. Uh, I used to way back in the day, back when it was extended. Um, I used to always, and we're talking like way back, but I used to always play crazy combo decks at all the tournaments. You know, like I played a Lurin back, you know, right, fifteen right. years ago or whatever, sixteen years ago. Yeah, it's the most fun thing in the whole world. Was talking to Kessler about it recently. I built one of these gem, these gem diamond decks you were talking about. At least I tried the whole season, and I, we had unveiled it on the podcast, and it was super fun. But I might just sleeve up the Grixis deck because I think it's was, sweet. What was the deck? It was this crazy collected company deck with with four four Coco, four Vile, and then it played like Mir Superians and Tarmogoyfs and like all kinds of weird stuff like Tide Hollow Sculler, Fauna Shaman. It was like this this rock deck that did all kinds of weird funky stuff and it played burning tree emissary to get superior out on turn two but it only played 20 lands so you could violin the bte to hit company a turn early it was just weird and it did all kinds of cool stuff played a bunch of just good abzan cards like you know path to exile and abrupt decay and, and all kinds of stuff but it, it was pretty solid i took it to a few events and it was one of those things it was perfect against twin because it played three or four main deck spell skites and in something like 32 games, I didn't play against a single twin deck. Well, it, it also, there was, the deck was created before Colligon's Command was printed. Oh, yeah, And yeah, then, right. like, the card that just single-handedly wrecks it. And, I mean, we're going to talk about that card in a second. Um, single-handedly, I think, is one of the reasons just control decks are now a viable option versus just control decks being the main kind of control deck out there like just wrecks this deck in the, particular. the fact that they could get a card out of my hand and destroy my superior for one card or like hit my vial and like it was just it was just rough it just you know uh but anyway and get back the snapcaster mage to do it again next turn yeah right. it, was, it was brutal it was brutal but anyway the deck was super fun it was a brew your grixis control deck destroyed it let's talk about your grixis control deck <laughs> um, this is one of those like the one predator eats the other yeah right it's just there's no, a, there's no, always I, a bigger fish. <laughs> no, it just it, it just rotates around, but it's good to identify when the texture of a format is such that it's not the right time for a particular brew because Grixis isn't going to be good forever. Right. And uh, Twin isn't necessary. I mean, Twin might be the one thing that is always good, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, in general though, one of the traps that brewers fall into sometimes is ignoring the signs in a format that, that it's not the right time for a particular clever interaction because that deck does sound fancy. It sounds like there's some cool synergies that take advantage of some underappreciated cards, but it just so happens that it's not the right time for it. And that's okay. You know, you still have that in your back pocket too. And maybe you figure out some new piece of technology that allows you to overcome whatever weakness you're, you're experiencing with it. I really hope so. I forgot to mention the last card that I played as a two of, which is one of your favorites of all time and you're famous for, was I played two profane commands because the ability to give my superior and my boy fear and get back a dead superior on X's two was just too good. 
It was too very good. clever. Yeah, it's anyway. very very clever. Yeah, it's very clever. Thank you for calling it that. Let's um <laughs> let's get into your deck. So no, so, I don't mean that in a bad way. No, it is no, clever. I I know you mean that. I just like, mean it like it takes advantage. Like it exploits the fact that the mirror superior has a fake. Like its casting cost is lower than it should really be. The number is literally lower than what it really is. And uh, because, like, the real casting cost of a card is how much work it takes to get it in play. Right. And the Mirror Superion takes more work than what the number says. And so you actually get to leverage the fact that it has a fake small number. Um, I was going to pretend this was a Twitter question to be funny, but I'm just going to ask directly. I often say that Spellskite's the best card in Modern. Uh, do you think that's even a remotely defensible statement, or do you think it's just absurd? Uh, it is not remotely defensible. Not even a close. It's more than just absurd. It's, I mean, it's wrong also, but it's... <laughs> yes. Shots fired. No, I, <laughs> officially, guys. No, I think, I think that there have been plenty of times where Spellskite has been absolutely amazing. But I, I think that, uh, that right now is not necessarily the best time for it because of the amount of main deck artifact hate. And uh, besides, at the end of the day... It's not even in the zip code of Snapcaster Mage. Snapcaster Mage is a messed up magic card. It oh. is a great card. It's a great card. It's just the bar is really high when you play a format where Tarmogoyf is legal. No, I mean, I say it half jokingly and half seriously, but anyway. It might be one of the most underrated cards over the history of modern. That I could get behind. Fair enough. Okay, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, last question before we move into outro-ness. Um, you mentioned that Jace the Mind Sculptor is probably your favorite card. Where do you stand on the unbanning Jace? Uh, correctly. Correct. <laughs> well, that from doesn't a, from answer a the selfish, question. From a selfish standpoint or from an actual health of the format standpoint? Uh, I mean, I'm a practical man. Oh, really? So I you think it's a practical I decision? I don't think that they're going to unban Jace the Mind Sculptor. Okay, gotcha. Fair enough. The barrier to entry is high, and it conflicts with a lot of their goals and even though i mean maybe it's fun maybe it would work i'm going to continue to look to see if there's ever a chance where it might make sense but realistically it is not probable because almost everyone in the world misunderstands how powerful jace the mind sculptor is jace the mind sculptor is more powerful than more than half of the restricted cards in vintage and even though contextually at times it may seem like Jace isn't necessarily dominating legacy on one particular uh, week or month or year, or it's not necessarily defining vintage. The In terms of the amount that Jace is undercosted and the pressure that it puts on the format, it would probably not be a good idea for Jace to be legal given their, their goals for the format. That sounds like a practical and logical answer. <laughs> Question answered. Okay, so that's kind of it for today. Uh, I do want to kind of uh, make an announcement. We are actually moving the release time for our podcast, and maybe the, you guys who've been listening have noticed, but uh, we're actually now coming out on Mondays. Uh, based on my work schedule, and I'm the guy editing everything, it's a lot more feasible for me to edit it on the weekends, and so we're now uh, recording them on Mondays or Tuesdays normally, and then we'll release it the following Monday. Um, though because of this, I'm going to work really hard to make sure and try and sometimes get bonus episodes that will release the Friday before the, the next Friday from sometimes we'll have guests that are cool and we go over and that'll kind of lead into some bonus content. Um, beyond that, we want to remind you guys to follow us on Twitter. We are at the MM cast. I am at Kess Wiley. I'm at Ben Bateman media. Uh, you can find our wonderful guest, Patrick Chapin, where can the, and a lot of places, but Patrick, why don't you let them know where they can find you? Uh, I'm on StarCityGames.com on the premium side. I'm on Twitter, the P Chapin. Uh, I'm on the Facebook, Patrick Chapin, the Innovator Public Figure page. 
Uh, I'm on toplevelpodcast.com where uh, Michael Flores and I do a podcast every week on Thursday nights um, about whatever we feel like, which is usually standard. Uh, I'm uh, at a lot of GPs these days, so you can see me there. But uh, otherwise, that's that about. Oh, and The Gathering on iTunes. All right. You know, I hope you guys do on, on the top level. I hope you do more modern content. Uh, I've gone back and scoured the history to see any time that you guys ever had like a title that referenced it and listened to all those episodes. So I, I will be uh, <laughs> overwhelmed with excitement if you do. And I, I you know this is kind of a, a weird and random thing to point out. But years back before I had ever actually met you, I had read your book and I was a fan of you as a player. And I just was kind of nervous, but I approached you to tournaments, introduced myself. And you were about as gracious as anyone has ever been at a tournament. And I would encourage any fan of Patrick Chapin you've seen him at a tournament please i encourage you to do the same thing because and i hope i'm not putting you on the spot here but i, I was definitely impressed and uh, and found it to be pretty cool so if you are a fan like i was you know introduce yourself yeah i mean absolutely <laughs> i uh love meeting magic players you know yeah totally man. well and last but not least make sure to check out our sister podcast the command zone they're on rockjump.com they do awesome commander content jimmy's been on all of our top 10 countdowns josh is on a few episodes they're both great guys they know a lot about commander uh the podcast is awesome and uh we will see you guys next week patrick thanks so much for coming by man all right thanks for having me you guys have a great week you too Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>